So chapter 13, a um, couple questions. You can respond if you want to. Don't have to raise your hands or anything, but just some thinking, okay? As we approach the Bible, is the Bible authoritative? What do we say? It's authoritative. I see some heads nodding. I heard one comment. Thank you. Uh, it is authoritative. Is the Bible infallible? Without error. Yes, I heard more yeses there. That's good. You started something, Tina. Good for you. Even on this side of the room, we usually don't hear from this side. So that's good. And the third one is God sovereign. And we've been, we've been going through that. That's Paul's, the, the gospel is overriding theme, but with the gospel is the fact that God is sovereign. And as we get into these lifestyle Issues, and that's what chapter 12 and 13 would be as lifestyle issues. He is now, he's finished the doctrinal section of 11 chapters. And what he's trying to do here to the, this primarily Gentile church in Rome is instruct them on okay, now here the doctrines are, how do you carry them out? And he started out with chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, which is a, a transformational, uh, transformational ber- verse. And to me, it is. It is on the equivalent of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 17, as the gospel is explained in very short, short two verses. And then he beseeched. He, he, he came to this people and he beseeches them to do what? I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to what? Present your bodies. A living sacrifice, not like the dead ones in the Old Testament, a living sacrifice. We are to be a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our what? Reasonable service. And he, 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 as Paul does many times, he'll present something, then he come back and he'll present it in another way. And he says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the what? Renewing of our mind. The renewing of our mind. It's our reasonable spiritual worship if you will. So he, he presents to the Gentile church how to do that. Now understand, when he's talking to the Gentile church, they came from a background where they were considered the barbarians. Their lifestyle of sexual impurity, and we'll see that today, and, and things like that. Their attitudes towards uh, anybody in, uh, in, that was in uh, a position of authority. Uh, and the Jews had that problem too, the position of authority, the attitude towards the government, but they, those, were, those, were, those were synonymous with being a Gentile, being a barbarian. So now he gets into chapter 13, and he touches on some real sensitive issues, and you know what? They're sensitive today. They're sensitive today. They're sensitive for us in America, and to the point where we really need to see what the Bible says about them. And it should have an effect on our attitude about things in our life. And the first one we're going to hit on is going to be the issue of government. Now, in 2 Peter 1.21, Peter says, There's no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke as God, uh, uh, pardon me, men spoke from God, moved or carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So Peter agrees with Paul that there's, there's an important issue here, and that important issue for all of us 
is to realize the Bible is infallible. It is authoritative. And God is sovereign. And thus, even though we want to disagree, and it's our nature to disagree, isn't it? It's our nature to rebel. That's human nature. And that's what he's dealing with here with this Roman church, is don't be carried back to your human nature. Be renewed. And be renewed through your mind as, you, as you're in the scriptures. And then 2 Timothy, of course, Paul says all scriptures is inspired by God or given by inspiration of God. And that word inspiration would be God breathed. God breathed out these words and put them on paper with pen. And that is important because if what is truly directing our lives and changing us, then we have to buy into that. We have to believe it. And we have to believe it in every part of our life. Because if we step in one part of our life in this, and we all have, what happens to our testimony to the people around us? What happens to our testimony to the unsaved people that we deal with on a daily basis? I got a couple of people in the apartment building that I go to see, and I have to really watch myself and what I say because I don't want to give a negative connotation to anything that would be contrary to the Word of God. And that's hard. That's hard. At least it's hard for me to do. So let's take a look at, at what we have here. Living out the gospel. The topic in, in chapter 12, just like we've talked about through the Bible, is the issue of faith and obedience. How, how do people outside this building and inside, how do people recognize our faith? It's by what we do and how obedient we are to the Word of God. And I can remember myself in the early days, you see uh, somebody claimed to be a Christian, and I see him do that, and say, boy, I don't know if they're a Christian. You know, in my uh, youthful, they were looking and seeing the same thing with me, but I didn't realize that. So anyway, we have to, we have to understand faith and obedience, and the big issue is submission. And Paul's used that over and over, and he'll use it again today. Do, are we willing to submit ourselves to what God has presented in his word through the hand of Paul or Peter, whoever it may be? So let's take a look at these first seven verses. Is, uh, is government of God, that's the question we'll start with. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment, for rulers are not a terror to good, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? The answer there is rhetorical. Yes, you should. Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant, an important word that we're going to look at in it, for our good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an adventurer who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, authorities, or ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed, to them taxes, to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And uh, we're in Romans chapter 13. So he gives, a, he, he gives a thing here. It's a continuation. 
Uh, go back one verse into 12. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And really, if these two chapters had been placed in one chapter, I think would have been a good thing, but that's just my opinion. Because he's talking about not to do evil, and then he goes on and he says, now let people, let every person be subject. And he's talking here about rulership. Now who are the rulers that we can remember in, um, uh, in Israel from the time that Jesus was born until, say, 70 A.D.? This is written 57 A.D. Any, anybody remember any of them? Just to say, I, I wrote a few down. Augustus served up to 14 A.D., Tiberius up to 37 A.D., Claudius to 54. Now, Paul's writing in 57 A.D. or 56, right in that area. Who was the ruler? Pardon? Nero, until about 70 A.D. So Nero was a ruler. Were these people Christian rulers? Claudius, Tiberius, etc., etc.? No. They weren't. So as Paul is talking to these people, both Gentile and Jew here, he's talking during a time when Nero was in rule, and he was, he was very cruel. He was very cruel to Jews. So he was not a good ruler. He, he wasn't what we'd look at as a Ronald Reagan or something like that, uh, that was a fairly nice guy. He wasn't that. They were terrible. And yet Paul writes this and says, be subject to him. This is a continued topic. That we're, that we're talking about from our transformation in chapter 12. So the first thing we see here is submission to government is absolutely a responsibility of every believer. We have a responsibility to submit to government. The whole ideas of the early church were radical to both Jew and Gentile in their society, and yet, as radical as they were, they were to submit. They were to submit to the government that was over them. Now, we know... And we're not going to go there today, but we know there's a place in the Bible that says, okay, we obey God or obey man. Well, we obey God. We come to that. If they suddenly came here and said, okay, if, uh, if you don't open your doors and publicly announce that you're receptive to uh, homosexuals and transsexuals as members, uh, then we're going to tax you. Well, you know what? We'd be taxed. We'd be taxed. Now, is that right? We could say no. Why us versus somebody else? But the reality is, we're still under the protection of the government. But now we're going to pay taxes because we do not want to obey the government. We want to obey God instead. So there, that time might come, but we're not in that time. We're not in that situation. And yet, Paul says here that we are to be submissive to the government. There's two reasons for that. In 1B, he says it's because government is by God. And in verse 2, he says it's because uh, the, the, uh, government is a judgment on evil. Even the very worst government in the world is better than no government, because then you have total anarchy. And even in the worst government that we can see in the world, there's still a judgment on what would be classified as evildoers. Now, I realize we might classify evildoers different than Russia or China would. I understand that. But there's still a government there. And there's still Christians living under those governments in a lot better, greater distress than what we are. So government officials, it says, are a servant of God. What does that mean? Government officials are a servant of God. Look at verse 4. For he is God's servant, 
And that's repeated uh, two more times. He's God's servant, for he is God. What does that mean, that he's God's servant? Every ruler that is in the world and has been will someday be answerable to God. Now, if they're unsaved, of course, we know there's condemnation to hell, the great white throne judgment. And there is levels of, uh, I believe there's levels of punishment. And they're going to be answerable to God because they are God's rulers. And they have the ability to see that in the Bible. Now, what was Nebuchadnezzar like? Why did, why did God use Nebuchadnezzar? Well, first of all, he used Nebuchadnezzar to punish Judah and Benjamin, the southern two tribes, didn't he? He used Nebuchadnezzar, an evil ruler, for that purpose, to punish and to bring, um, bring a hard hand on the southern two tribes. But did he do that differently than what he did the ten northern tribes? Yes. Assyria dispersed the ten northern tribes, never to, re, to regather. God will regather them someday, but never to regather. But in the southern tribes, he caused Nebuchadnezzar, who had defeated Syria and everybody else, he caused Nebuchadnezzar to bring them as a nation. And they didn't bring every single person, but he, he brought a lot of people. And then God did something that he had done before with Joseph in Egypt. He raised up Daniel into the government of Nebuchadnezzar, and protected the nation of Israel and the remnant. There's always this remnant issue, we got to remember. And God preserved a remnant in Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar's rule, and ultimately, with Cyrus, released those people to go back and reestablish their nation without any kind of consequences. We don't know what God's end purpose is and what he does and what he allows. We don't know what God's end purpose is in the government leaders we have today. We don't know that, but God does. And that's why he wants us to submit ourselves and obey so that that end purpose is everything that God wants it to be. Or there can be consequences. We need to understand that. And I, I, don't, think, I don't think we do a real good service uh, when, we, when, we, when we do things like make the jokes and, the, and the send the little old uh, pictures and stuff like uh, uh, mocking or making fun of government officials. I don't think that's what God is ha- has in place here. Do you? I don't think so. I think he has the attitude of the heart. If our heart is right, and we're going we're gonna to run into that in a few verses, if our heart is right, and what we're doing, and we do it in love, God wants us to do it in, I think we'll find that those things will become a real negative in our life. We won't appreciate them. And we won't, we won't be so quick to, uh, to repeat them. So, government officials. Let's take a look here. The government is a divine institution with its own de- definite uh, duties. It is not our business as a church to see else is not plunged into lawlessness. That's not our, our, our place. Satan is the prince and power of the air. If we, believe that, if we believe that we're a remnant of the people, which is what we are, isn't it? If we're a remnant of the people, then there's far more people brought as a path that leads to destruction that are, that are unsaved than are saved. And with that, with that, with that issue, are we going to see lawlessness continue to increase in the world until Jesus comes back? 
Yes, we are. But many believers kind of the, the idea that it is our job to uh, uh, fight lawlessness and be against it. Well, I agree. We have in this country the ability to go to the polls. There's some countries they don't have that ability. They have to take whoever's appointed. And a lot of times it's within a family that's appointed. We have the ability to go to the polls. We have the ability to members. We have the ability to people's ideas towards voting. We can do those things. We're open to that. And we should be more about that. I know I should be more involved. I was involved years ago. I got, I got sick of it and fed up with it and kind of walked away. I mean, I voted like that, but I haven't been involved on the local level like I used to be, and I probably should be, so I'd be guilty of that. But there's two errors that are avoided when we understand the place of government and that God instituted government. When did he institute that? When did he take a, a direct involvement in instituting government in the world? At Babel. You know, we had the time of innocence in mankind, and they failed God. They had the time of conscience in, with mankind, which we still have a conscience, that can be seared, but it also can be trained to do what God wants to do. We had a conscience, that failed. And God had, had an edict to the people of the world to spread out and populate the whole known earth. They weren't doing that. So he confused them at Babel, which is uh, outside of Babylon and what's today is modern-day Iraq. He confused them at Babel to force them to disperse. It's a neat thing when you think about it. God was in control of that. And he did that, and then ultimately, of course, he chose one man to, to, to build a nation out of to bring about the Messiah. He did it again with Alexander the Great, didn't he? And that's about three, 400 uh, B.C. Alexander the Great conquered the whole world, and what did he do? He Hellenized his own world. Everybody had to speak what? Greek. Everybody had to speak Greek. You think that the people were unhappy about having to change their language or be punished by the government? Well, I would think so. I know the Jews, I'm sure, were unhappy, but what did that do? It brought about the time of Jesus and the disciples, and the, world, the word could go out to everybody because there was a common language. And God established that some 300 years before that in what he did. And I'm sure people were unhappy. But they submitted to government, or they were supposed to submit to government, and the Maccabees didn't do a very good job of that. Uh, but the reality is, God's purposes, we don't know the end from the beginning. And in God's timing, that this earth has been in existence six to 10,000 years, I believe, uh, Wayne would agree of that, and, um, and probably closer to 6,000 in your, in your mindset, and that's, that's probably accurate. But it's been in, in, in uh, it, the world has been here that many years. That's a short time to God. He's eternal. We look at that and say, oh, my stars. I mean, I got grandkids that think I'm ancient. And then I remember when I thought my grandparents were ancient. And I realized I'm just getting my just due. Well, in God's mind, that's a short time. So what do we have here? Uh, the, the, other, the, the one was this. The church had two errors that it 
that uh, were avoided by Paul. One is uniting the church and the state. We saw that with Catholicism. We even saw that with Reformed theology. The other one was setting them at opposition to each other, bringing the, the, uh, the religious group, if you will, including the church now, church against the government. And Paul's not doing either one of those. Kind of going back to the railroad track thing. Both are there, both have a purpose, and they both meet a need that God has provided for his people. And we have a responsibility to submit to that. Yep. into being involved in it. And so I think that the argument is that God is sovereign, and when there's sin, when there's things that are evil, that's where we use God's methods to fight evil, not the devil's methods. Right. The devil's methods would be take up arms, obviously. God's method is to go to prayer and trust yourself to God and cry out to him. Well, that's what I was just saying. If, if the day comes where they come to us and say, you have to do this and this and this, that's the time that we say no. We're going to... Absolutely. But prayer, prayer is our avenue. Prayer is our avenue to God. And that's why uh, we've said for years, prayer meeting is probably one of the most important church services that every one of us should attend. Because of corporate prayer, that's... That's what we saw demonstrated in the New Testament. They didn't go against the government. They didn't go out and hold up posters and walk around the Capitol and do things like that. No. They went to prayer because they understand the sovereignty of God. So I understand that. And I understand those details, and we'll hit on that. But the reality is our responsibility is still to, to submit to the government. It doesn't mean we agree with everything. It doesn't even mean we, we do everything if it goes contrary to the word of God. That's not our place. That's not our place. Right. And you know what? No, it isn't. But what are they supposed to do? Start shooting them? No. No. And the persecution has always been there with God's people. It's always been there. And matter of fact, sometimes God uses persecution in order to get people to pray so that he responds. So I understand those things, that they're not right. And that's not the place of, of good government. I understand that. But government is run predominantly by unsaved people who are servants of whom? Satan. Says, submit under Nero. Under Nero. So did Peter. So did John 40 years later. He talks about that. So we have a responsibility to do what God says and let God take control 
of what goes on in these, in these lives. Now, there's two things here that we see, two key words. One is governing authorities, and uh, that is in um, verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. That word servant took on a broader aspect than just obedience. That word servant is, um, let me see if I can pronounce that. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. The word servant there is uh, kairos, kairos. And it has to deal with the fact, not just of a servant, he's a minister. It's the same word they use for those who uh, were in charge of the temple in the Old Testament. Servants. Paul says that these people who are in governmental positions, including Nero, including Biden, including Waltz, including my son David, I kind of like him. I'm not a fan of the other two, but they're ministers. God says they're ministers. Now, he's going to hold them accountable for what they do, but they're ministers that we are supposed to submit to, whatever they are. So submission, uh, subject or subjected is the verb. This word has a broader implication also. It tells us that we are to stand under government. We are not to control government. Government is over It's over the church. And we don't like that because we don't like to submit. That's that's contrary to human nature. But God is telling us here through Paul that we need to do that. And he he gives the examples of paying taxes and attending to these things. And uh, revenue that where revenue is owed and so on and so forth. Well, taxes have to do with direct government payment. Uh, In our book, it would be something like our... our, uh, taxes on our income as well as taxes on property. We don't like those high rates. We don't like rates getting up uh, where some of them are in some states now to 10%. Uh, We don't like that. But that's our responsibility according to the Word of God. And then it goes on, it talks about revenues, and those would be more indirect things. I I would guess in our day and age it would be like assessments. If we get road assessments, street assessments, uh, fees, that are charged for things. That's all a form of taxes. And Paul is saying, if that's what's due, do that. Why? Because there's a bigger picture here than our disagreement with the government that we're under. Now, we have some options. We've seen people move to Iowa, seen them move to South Dakota, Florida, and different places where they don't have certain kinds of taxes. And we, we have those options. They didn't have those options back at this time. They didn't have those options. They, they couldn't leave because the rulers in these days ruled the whole area, pretty much. So they couldn't leave and say, I'm going to go up to, uh, to Spain because the taxes are cheaper or something like that. That didn't work. And he's saying here, this word minister, which I said was also in the Septuagint, the Greek uh, Old Testament, means ministers. God's purposes are for civic leaders to be God's servants. But we know, because of sin and corruption, that's not necessarily true. And that's unfortunate, but that's the world we live in. That's why the church becomes so important. So let's go on here to take a look at verse uh, 8. Now it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. The theme that he's hitting on here, he's returning to the what, second half of chapter uh, uh, 12 had in it, And that is the issue of love. 
we talk there about the Christian's responsibility to love. When we realize uh, where we are in terms of uh, our government, for instance, that should bring us closer together in love. That should bring us closer together as a family in our church. And that's where Paul is. And he's talking about the, the issue of love here. We, now, the first one is, oh, no, in anything. Well, what's the subject matter he's dealing with here? What was he dealing with? Because he doesn't have anything like a four in front of him. Because he's dealing with the same subject you're just talking about, I believe. He's talking about the government. We have a responsibility not to, not to be negligent in paying our dues and our taxes to the government. Now, it can be applied to all bills, yes, but that's not the main subject here. When we pull that out and say, the Bible says, oh man, no man anything, uh, we better take a look at what he's talking about here. And that is, I believe, applicable to the subject matter of the government and authorities. That's, that's, our, our, that's what we're supposed to submit to. Except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes through some commandments. You shall not commit adultery, murder, uh, you should not steal, you should not covet. And then he says, they're all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, we saw that in chapter 12. Love fulfills the law. Love to whom? The debt that we can never pay is the debt to love one another. I have a responsibility to love John in the Lord. So I'll say, okay, I love John. Is that done? Or what about John comes does something to me? I say, well, I don't have to love him anymore. No, you still have to love John. Now, John's never done anything to me. But you still have to love John. It's an ongoing thing. Here's a... Here's a a church father, Origen, said this. If you don't get anything else out of this today, get this. Let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love, a debt which you should always be attempting to pay in full, but we will never succeed in discharging that. We can never, the love for each other and the love for those around us outside these walls, the unsaved. I believe he's talking about the whole thing here. We are responsible to love. Now, there's a different love in here than what we would maybe exercise outside. Their, their need is Jesus Christ. They need the gospel of salvation. We need an overriding umbrella of grace to act as a church and to love one another in a proper way. There should never be disputes that are, on, that are, are, not, are not resolved and settled in a church. shouldn't be there. That's a responsibility. And what Origen is saying, that we owe, but it's an ongoing debt because we can never love enough. You know, we've got enough, enough of natural man in us, and we have enough of the sin nature that's still there that we can never fulfill that completely. And he is saying to these people, that's why you just keep doing it, because it's never ending. You cannot, you cannot fulfill it completely. Therefore, love is fulfilling the law. If, if we love enough, we will not be uh, committing adultery. 
If we love enough, we will not be stealing. If we love enough, we will not be covetous. And that's a tough one for us, isn't it? Covetousness. If we love enough, we will not do any of the other sins. It, it, it fulfills the entire law because if you have a proper love, if I have a proper love for my, uh, my neighbors, and there's several that are older ladies that I get the phone call when they need help. Well, you go into these older ladies' apartments, there's all kinds of stuff laying around. You know, you could, their doors are open, and, you know, you could rob them blind. And they wouldn't know it. Maybe later on they'd know it. When they look for something, they can't find it. I wonder what happened to that. But the whole issue is, if we love those people enough in the Lord, we will not commit those things. Now, in a perfect environment, a perfect world, we wouldn't need prisons and jails, would we? Because everybody would be doing that. But punishment has to take place when you break the law. The hope is that we are living our life in front of the unsaved in such a manner, including when it comes to our government officials and submitting to them and doing it without the mockery, the little uh, things you like to send out, people like to send out about stuff like that, poking fun. If we do that in a manner, we chance when we talk to those people about the Lord. Does that make sense? I see some nodding. That's good. So that's the issue that Origen was talking about. John 15, 12 says this. This is my commandment. That you love one another as I loved you. True, godly, Godlike love will keep us from things that we see committed in verse 9. True godly love will keep us. And you know what? I look at some of those things and I think back, boy, oh boy, I wish I knew 30 years ago what I know today concerning the Word of God. Well, that's the purpose for things like this, and that's the purpose for our Sunday school classes and for our kids, that we, as we get older, hopefully... We are more transformed to the Word of God and knowledgeable, and hopefully we can help the younger. Like when I talk to my kids and things like that, that we can encourage them in the things of the Lord. So then let's finish up in verses 11 through 14. Lifestyle issues concluded. And it says here, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does that mean, for salvation is nearer now than when we first believed? Does that mean you kept getting saved long enough? Right on. Our salvation is complete. If I die today, you could say my salvation is complete. I'm in the presence of the Lord. But it actually won't be totally complete until God raises my body from the grave at the rapture. Then it's complete for the church age. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. Israel is not the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. It's unique to this dispensation, this economy of time that God is dealing with mankind. And thank the Lord for that, because otherwise our Gentiles will be on the outside looking in. We'd be on the outside looking in. So the church is the bride of Christ. There's going to come a time when the bride of Christ is complete at the rapture. But, for other people, that won't happen until the second coming of Jesus at the end of the tribulation. 
And he's saying, Paul is saying, understand the time that you're in. Now let's take a look at that. The end result of that is in verse 14. Let me say that first. The end result is we strip off the cloak of sin and we put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's pictured like a garment. And make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. And he uses the contrast here of night and day, of darkness and light, common contrasts. We see them in Obadiah, we see them in Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians. Uh, we saw them in Hosea. And those contrasts are a common thing. That's not unique to Paul saying this. This is something that's been a contrast for years. But what is here for us, I believe, is this. When we look at the, the times, the, knowing the time, the Greek word there I said earlier is kairos. It means the appointed hour. And he is saying here to these people that, you know what? There's an appointed hour. There's an appointed hour for you and where you're in it. Now, what age were you in as we would look at it? What age were they in? The age of grace, the times of the Gentiles, the church age. That's the age that this is fun- functioning in, and that's what Paul is telling them. Understand what age you're in. Understand what, what kairos you're in, what time you're in. And here's what you need to do. And he goes on to tell them, wake up. So when you look at your lifestyle, and you look at the renewal of your mind, get going with it. Because you're in this age, the time of the Gentiles. Now, how long does that go? You can say it, Tina. We don't know, do we? We don't know. This is 2,000 years ago. Now, what did the Thessalonians do when they, when they heard this kind of message? They sold everything they had quit their jobs, and sat there and waited for Jesus to come. Now, I'm not quite that simplistic, but it gets the point. And Paul rebuked them, didn't he? He said, no, get a job, be busy, be doing what you should do. Why? Because only God the Father knows the time that Jesus is coming back. Only God the Father knows. So he's here, and this reminds me of what Pastor Matthew chapter 24 and it was asked last week by a couple of people. We look at the wars and the, and the things going on. And he, he said then, Jesus said to the disciples in Matthew, you know what? There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and fighting and all these things. And he said, don't be alarmed. Why? Because that is the standard thing that happens in the world. It always has been. Clear back in the Old Testament, and it still is. My parents lived through uh, World War I and World War II, the, the Korean conflict. My dad was in that. And uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, war in, uh, in um, Vietnam and Laos. And, and we've seen Desert Storm. We've seen all these things. Those are common happenings when it comes to mankind. They've always been there. And that's what Matthew 24 says. Here, he's talking about knowing the time that you're living in in this case, to the Gentile church, the times of the Gentiles. The gospel has been open to you, the Gentiles. That's the time you're in. And we're 2,000 years after this writing, and we're still in time. 
we're still supposed to keep doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're still, still supposed to be obedient, and especially when it comes to renewing our minds with the Word of God. I think sometimes I spend all the time reading the Word of God that I did reading uh, books by Louis L'Amour. Uh, it would probably have been a lot more profitable. If I had spent the time reading the Word of God that I spent reading books that are it was probably more profitable to me. And I'd be better off today. So the imagery here of light and dark is a common one. The eschatology, what does eschatology mean? Of last things? Anything else? As we think about it here, as Paul is talking, it's understanding the present and the future. We need to understand where we are today in this age, the church age. I'll tell you what, it is pretty important to belong to a local New Testament church. Very important. And it's a testimony to do that. If, if they ever came and said, okay, I want to see a record of your members, I'm telling you right now, I'd be proud to have my name there. Even if it meant certain death, I'd be proud to have my name there. Why? Because the church is the institution that God has for this dispensation. That's what he's getting to these people. And eschatology not only includes the future, but the present and future. At least I, I believe that. I believe the verb tense there, I got that, a lot of that from Dr. Moose, would be the present and future. The study of last times. Now what pastor said last time, what does that go back to? What does that go back to? What we're just talking about. Paul's writing. The institution of the church. That became the time of the Gentiles. So the last times has been here for 2,000 years. Now, can we be certain it's here for another 2,000 years? No. And that's why Paul says, be prepared today. It could be tomorrow. We were, and he says, we're closer. We were, we're closer today than we were yesterday. And we're a lot closer today than Paul was 2,000 years ago when he wrote this to a church, to a group of Gentiles. So let's, let's have our lifestyle fit what God has for us. It includes these areas that he hit on. The last times, the understanding of proper love, and our attitude towards government. Okay, thank you.